Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scors and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse Full Reality Edition. Um, yeah, so I uh, hope everybody is doing okay in, you know, whatever week, you know, five, six of lockdown, I guess, depending on where you are, because different states have rolled this out at different points, but uh, we're really deep in it right now. And uh, again, really hope everybody is doing okay. You know, my whole family is in New York City, so it's been pretty intense. Uh, won't get into all the details because they are not super encouraging. But, uh, you know, I'm here in central coast of California, and it's kind of the opposite. You know, it's been pretty sunny and get to walk outside in nature and... Uh, take my new dog out and uh, so it hasn't been all that bad all things considered but again my family in New York City really at the opposite end of the spectrum although knock on wood they are all uh, you know have been spared the worst although you know my brother's family has gotten the virus and has uh, has suffered mildly from it not in a horrible way but has uh, been sick um, but they're on the upswing. But anyway, getting into the uh, the heart of the episode here. The the title here is The Mystery of Empathy. kind of just been thinking a lot about empathy in this last few weeks and kind of wanted to share some thoughts. But before I get to that, I want to talk about voting rights, which is something I spoke about in the last episode. And so the last episode was recorded on April 6th, and then there was the Wisconsin primary and Supreme Court, state Supreme Court election on April 7th. So when I was recording on April 6th, I was talking about how the one thing I'm really worried about right now, apart from COVID, is the impacts of COVID on the November election. I am... 100% certain that Trump and the GOP are going to do everything they can to steal the election. And I do mean steal. I mean every dirty trick in the book, every legal maneuver, every legislative maneuver to suppress the votes of Democrats and thereby steal the presidential election, steal congressional elections, steal state elections, steal Senate elections. Right. And um, this is what they do. The Republicans have been stealing elections for decades. They stole the 2000 election from Gore. Um, and, you know, anyone who thinks, you know, the most corrupt, evil, cynical, uh, lawless administration in modern American history isn't going to try to steal the election is just simply dreaming and on some bad drugs. So they're going to try to steal it. And I was um, really worried about that. And then on April 7th, we saw the test run. We saw the Wisconsin government. So the Wisconsin has a Democratic governor. He wanted to extend 
some absentee ballot deadlines. He tried to get the legislature to do it. They didn't do it. Then he announced that he would do it, but then the Wisconsin Supreme Court blocked it. And then it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they blocked it as well. And so what what happened is you had people literally who couldn't get extensions from absentee voting, which is, should be the norm, right? This is just basics here that if we're in a uh, pandemic, it should be 100% vote by mail. That should be the norm. The problem is, is Republicans think vote by mail will increase um, voter turnout and they think increased voter turnout will hurt them. Don't want to get into the details of that. But again, this is a very anti-democratic thinking, right? That that more voting is going to hurt us, so we want less voting. So now they're coming up with all this bullshit about, you know, voter fraud and corruption of mail-in ballots. Again, this is just all complete fucking bullshit. Right, so the the states that have 100% mail-in voting right now, we have Oregon and we have Utah, right? So we have a Democratic-leaning state and we have a very strong uh, Republican state, Utah, and they've been doing 100% mail-in voting, and everything's been fine. The studies that have come out, the, the amount of voter fraud is close to zero. It's not zero because there's no such thing as zero voter fraud in a country of 350 million, but it's close to zero. So a study came out, and you know there's been a, about a, basically 100 million votes cast in Oregon since this 100% mail-in voting went, and it's like 0.000001 voter fraud. Um, and, you know, again, there's a little voter fraud in person, little by mail, a uh, little absentee, but it's close to zero. It's it's really, it's not never been an amount to, to sway a statewide election. And so, you know, it's just more of this GOP bullshit to try to suppress votes. So what happens in Wisconsin? Uh, it basically people were Faced with an, um, you know, a choice of do I risk going out there and both contracting the illness and also spreading it, even if I can't get a, uh, you know, an absentee ballot. And uh, so it was kind of there was a tons of of editorials basically saying that you know Republicans are asking people to risk their lives to vote, and uh, it was really a, a just egregious affront to democracy. It was the type of evil that we've come to expect from the G- GOP, but uh, but it was in full force on an election day. And again, this is what they are going to do in November, right? I am, th- whether the, the virus is in a, an upturn during the election or not, I, I guarantee this, I would put every penny that I own on this, that crazy right-wing nut jobs will start sending Facebook messages and Twitter messages and blog posts about how don't go vote, you all in Milwaukee, you all in Miami, you all in Detroit, because you're going to die if you go vote. And uh, they're going to try to suppress the vote every possible way, every dirty trick. And what the the courts did up all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court was just disgraceful. The good news, the silver lining of all this, is that uh, we won big. Democrats won big. We crushed the GOP. People came out and were like, fuck this. We're not going to let these people suppress our votes. And they wore the mask and they social distanced and they came out in mass. 
Um, and so that was great. That was some really heroic. So just, you know, clap here for uh, Wisconsin voters. Uh, they really did a lot to, you know, to, to risk their, their own um, health to just push back the GOP wickedness. And now, of course, the sad thing is, is there are some fears that COVID is increasing because of the uh, the in-person election. You know, it's not 100 percent certain that there, you know, that that things are worse because of that. But there's some indications and, and that's just horrible. Right. That the fact that, you know, people coming out to vote could have possibly increased the spread of this disease. Right. So I'm just going to start. Uh, with an antidote right now, which is not typical of this program, which is I, I save those for the end. But this is call your congressional representative and call your two senators. So it's three phone calls I'm asking you to do and demand that in any future rescue packages, voter protections, vote by mail and money to help increase vote by mail for the November action elections are included. This is just absolutely critical, right? Because we will win big if the GOP doesn't steal the November election, right? People are fed up. People are fed up with the evil, the wickedness, the lies of Agent Orange and his minions. And uh, no matter how much death and destruction they uh, are going to you know, cause here, if we get a fair election, we will send them uh, into the dustbin of history in November. I am absolutely certain of that. So after the break, I'll come to the, the real heart of this episode, which is on empathy. I think I have some interesting things to share. And it's obviously central to this political moment and uh, the partisan divide in this country. Uh, so after the break, we'll, we'll start on, on the mystery of empathy. Okay, so to the heart of this episode here, which is the mystery of empathy, I want to first start with a little personal anecdote. I got a dog a few weeks ago. It's the first pet that I've ever had since I was, you know, very, very young, and I've never had a dog of my own. And her name is Belle. She's about six years old. We got her from a really cool, um, you know, rescue service up in uh, the San Francisco Bay Area. And she's just been awesome. She's just been a really, really awesome companion. And she's super sweet and just incredibly well, uh, well behaved and well trained. So whoever her previous uh, owners were did a great job. Although the last owner, from our understanding, actually the reason he had to give her up because he was going to jail. So we don't know how, what happened with that. Uh, again, hopefully he's uh didn't do anything too super horrible and uh, is not doing too bad. But anyway, we're super glad that he uh, had uh, you know trained Belle really well, and obviously she had a, a pretty decent life because she's a pretty happy dog. We think there might be some uh, you know some uh, issues with her abandonment or something. There was some issue at the end there, but uh, she's pretty well adjusted and pretty happy. Now the when we got her. 
the um, the, the the foster uh, parent from for her told us that her the one thing that we had to, to have addressed medically was she has this this toenail or paw nail I guess um, that was kind of curled up and was almost about to be ingrown was not ingrown but we looked at it and it was pretty creepy looking right this big thick toenail that was you know curled up and was almost kind of going back into her flesh there in her little toe and so there was enough space though that you could cut it right it wasn't it hadn't wasn't ingrown but it was a little dicey so I bought a, a, a toe clipper and then we started doing some research online had no idea about this glad we read about this and this is again good if you're a new pet owner you know read up on stuff before you make assumptions because I was thinking oh I'll just cut her you know nail no big deal but it turns out that you know nails for for dogs are actually very very sensitive they actually have veins in them and if you cut them too short it can be incredibly painful and uh, they can actually bleed because they have these veins in them so not like the a typical you know nail for a for a human which is is you know obviously you don't want to cut it too close but it's a dead uh, piece of kind of cartilage there and it doesn't have any nerve endings in it so I started when I read that I started kind of freaking out a little I was like oh shit you know this is gonna be tough so I took her toenail and you know I got the thing and I was moving you know making sure that I wasn't I was gonna cut just a little bit at the end and um, you know she's really trusting but she starts kind of wincing and she's pulling her back and, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it like my thought like oh my god I had this new animal and she trusts us and like the chance that I could just like mess up by a little you know, bit and, and maybe hurt her or, you know, cut a little of her skin or do anything. I just, I just like couldn't do it. So I, I said, all right, we're going to have to just bring her to a professional. Unfortunately, uh, there was a really great groomer here uh, who was open and we did that. And, you know, and I gave away the, the new uh, doggy t- t- uh, toe, toenail clippers um, that, I, that I had. So, but I realized at that moment, you know, that was, that was empathy, right? I was really feeling for this animal that was now in my care and I just didn't under any circumstances want to do anything that could possibly hurt her. And I could just really feel it when she was looking up at me and she was wincing and pulling her nail back and didn't want me to do this. You know, I just felt that incredible sense of, oh my gosh, you know, I don't want to harm this, this, this creature and you know and it just felt for her i guess it felt so horrible that she was you know in this discomfort and i realized also at that moment that this empathy that i had for this dog that at this point had been in my care for less than a day is more empathy than the president feels for the entire country right because we know just looking at the president he just doesn't have empathy he is basically you know, a low-grade sociopath or psychopath. Uh, it turns out, I was looking into this, that psychopath and sociopath are essentially the same thing, but psychopath is kind of the stronger version. And it just shocked me. I said, wow, here I am. I have more empathy for a dog that I just got for her toenail than the President of the United States feels for the 350 million citizens that are under his kind of care on on some level and we know this that trump is a malignant narcissist that he doesn't have empathy for others he doesn't care about others all he cares about is himself he has other utter disregard for people's suffering or for the impacts of his own cruelty now obviously having a sociopath as president is a terrible problem 
and part of the crisis we're in now is evidence of this, right? That someone who doesn't care, you know, is is going to make big mistakes. And we know that he has blood on his hands and his enablers in the GOP have blood on their, on their hands because they could have gotten rid of him. And as much as I don't like Mike Pence, uh, I think Mike Pence absolutely has a shred of empathy and would have done a much better job. Um, but I want to go a lot deeper than this. I don't want this to be a tirade against the president because that's, you know, that's easy pickings here. But I want to talk a little bit more here about kind of sociopathy because sociopathy is the key trait and characteristic of sociopathy is this lack of empathy. And if there is one trait we need above all else for our multiracial, multicultural experiment in democracy, it's empathy, right? It's easier in countries that are small, where everyone is largely homogenous, because the empathy is, you know, people look like you, they sound like you, they have the same cultural norms like you. Again, in aggregate, not that everybody is in the same, even in a place like Denmark or, you know, or, um, you know, or Norway. But, but we really need empathy in a multicultural democracy like the United States, where we have people from all over the world who look different, who sound different, have different languages, different cultures, different customs. And we're also big. We have hundreds of millions of people. We have, you know, Alabama and Hawaii and Alaska and New York City, right? Places that are just really, really diff different. And so if we're going to work together in a cooperative fashion and make a functional, healthy society of this nature, we need empathy. We need to feel for each other. Obviously, at a, at a deeper level, for, for all of humanity, if we're going to solve the environmental problems that we are confronting, we're going to need empathy for the other, you know, sentient beings apart from just humans, right? The, the animals and wildlife that we share this planet with, right? And so this ability to, um, to empathize means that we can feel each other's pain and, it, and that creates a desire to want to help each other. Right, and it want to create a, a unified body politic to create strong social safety nets and opportunities that will make America truly great. Right, because once you can empathize with others and you can imagine what it's like to be in their shoes, you you know you don't want them to suffer. You actually feel some amount of you know indirect pain when they're suffering, and you want to help them. And so, you know the the key thing here that I want to point out is. This sociopathy that we see in the, pres the president is a sociopathy that is actually pretty pervasive in the conservative movement, right? The conservative movement in America in some forms is a form of sociopathy. There's just this extreme feeling of we're all on our own, don't help people, a kind of a white supremacist nationalism that is now infused in this conservative um, movement. And obviously, the fact that these are the people who voted for Trump, it shows that this, this sociopathy tendency is pretty strong in this movement because you couldn't vote for Trump if you didn't have some of that. You know, as, as much as he was lying about giving people health care and he was going to tax the rich, he was also incredibly cruel in the run-up. You know, he, was, he said a ton of racist stuff, tons of really cruel stuff to women, sexist stuff to women. He was even making fun of people with disabilities. If you, if you remember those crazy moments where he was actually kind of 
you know, trying to make fun of people who are, you know, pretty, who have some pretty strong, you know, handicaps and disadvantages. So his sociopathy was on display and his voter base loved it. And so if you love a malignant narcissist, there's probably some of that within yourselves. Now, I want to be clear here that I'm not saying there is no sociopathy at all in anyone in the Democratic Party or in the Liberal Party. I'm not saying that. And I'm not saying that all people in the conservative movement are sociopaths. But I'm just saying the prevalence of this mental and psychological disorder is more prevalent in this conservative movement than in the liberal movement. I think that is just apparent with anyone with you know basic science and math skills, that, 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 that this correlation is strong in the conservative movement. And, and then it, it is... It has helped fuel this kind of resentment politics that has dominated the movement for at least a half century, right? When you don't empathize with people, when they're the other, when, you know, you're the the pure, true Americans and the pure, true white race and the true religion of Christianity, everyone else who you don't empathize with, you resent their presence, you resent them getting resources, you resent them getting positions of power, right? Now, the reality is there are two types of sociopaths. There are primary and secondary. Primary is someone for whom the disorder is primarily genetic. The secondary is someone for whom the disorder is primarily learned. Type 1 sociopaths are obviously in some sense more dangerous because their disorder is harder to understand and treat, right, if it's really a genetic disorder. Uh, but I think the what most conservatives who have some degree of sociopathy suffer from is more the type two, right? That that means their their lack of empathy is a learned behavior. It's not something they were born with. And I think we can even diagnose this to Trump to some degree, right? There is pretty strong anecdotal evidence that his father was a horrible human being who, who routinely degraded him and brought him up in pretty, you know, cruel manner that really helped him become the monster that he has become. Now, the, the, the silver lining here, though, is that if sociopathy is learned, it can be unlearned, and empathy and compassion can be developed in, in humans. And so this is kind of where I want to take this, you know, after the next break here, which is, you know, probably one of the most important parts of the American project going forward at some deep spiritual level, right? So this is not the tactical stuff about how to win elections and and the policies to do, but at a deeper spiritual level is how do we develop a larger sense of empathy amongst those who currently are more learning, leaning towards the sociopathy end of the spectrum, right? And it's very, very difficult to know how to move forward on this dimension because empathy is incredibly mysterious. It's a very mysterious, even with our own, within our own selves. If you ask yourself, you know, where did my empathy come from, right? Where do I feel it the most? Who do I feel it the most towards? What are the things that can kind of trigger my empathy? How do I respond to my empathy? It's one of the most mysterious parts of kind of human consciousness, Right, the ability to get in the mindset of somebody else and try to feel what they feel. So I do think, again, at a deep spiritual level, this has got to be part of the project. I can't imagine an America where you know up to close to half the country really doesn't feel empathy for large segments of the population. 
that's not going to really work. That's not going to lead to the type of unity that we need. So after the break, I'll come back with some more thoughts on maybe how we can develop empathy in a, in a greater um, amount in, uh, uh, throughout, throughout our society. Okay, so what do we know about empathy? You know, especially for those who have not learned it and do not have, you know, strong empathetic inclinations and therefore are more kind of on the sociopathy end of the spectrum. Well, we know that personal direct contact with people of different cultures and races matters a lot, right? But ironically, just living in proximity can sometimes lead to even more racist views. For example, there's some pretty you know, disturbing research coming out that people who live in mixed neighborhoods um, and who came from a place that was predominantly you know, all white and then they moved to somewhere can actually become more racist. The key here, though, is that it's not that they're getting um, that racism because of personal interactions, but something happens where it's in that kind of interpersonal, just being around different people. Maybe you find them strange or odd. You get more uncomfortable and it makes you kind of become more internal and more tribal and, you know, you close ranks. But I think there's pretty strong evidence that people who develop direct personal contact and become friends with people of different races and cultures and religions actually can really open themselves up um, and become much more empathetic and see those people as full human beings. Because it turns out that most of the hardcore conservative base, right, rural whites, they just don't know Jewish people, blacks, Hispanics, Muslims. Their heads are filled with caricatures, right? Obviously, Fox News and all the right-wing trash that they, um, that they regularly view fills them with all these kind of really evil stereotypes and caricatures of these groups. And since they have no direct contact with them, this becomes the norms of how they think about them, Right. And so this can be dispelled by just actually getting a friend, right, of a, of a different race or of religion. There's some really interesting work of kind of these, some of these white supremacists who, you know, again, think Jews and Muslims are, you know, trying to replace white people and destroy their culture. And then when they become friends with um, a Jewish person or a Muslim and realize that it's, you know, that the character, caricatures they've been fed all these years have been false, some of them actually recant. And, um, you know, and change their views and actually leave these white supremacist movements. I'm not saying this has been done at a mass scale, but we have seen evidence of that. It can be quite powerful. Also, it seems that, you know, empathy can come at strange times in people's lives, right? There's, um, there's uh, anecdotes about, you know, people who, you know, were hardcore meat eaters and then they're driving on the highway and they see, you know, a truckload of pigs driving by them and they're all squealing and they look super uncomfortable and it's really hot out. And they make that connection like, wow, like this is this is what the bacon is. It's like these animals that are being tortured and I don't want to live like that anymore. So it's kind of seeing some of it in direct 
um, in their direct sight. I think there's no doubt that that's true, and which is one of the reasons why the factory farming industry has gone out of its way, I mean, above and beyond to basically ban and criminalize the ability for people to take videos and pictures of slaughterhouse facilities because they know if people see this, they're not going to want to partake in it. So the way to do it is to sanitize it and literally keep it hidden from view and actually criminalize people who uh, show the truth. We also know that, you know, sometimes when people travel, that travel is a really good way to, um, to kind of reduce bigotry and reduce other kinds of forms of intolerance. I think there's a famous Mark Twain quote, you know, something that, you know, travel is the best way to erase, you know, bigotry. And I think a lot of times when people travel, you start questioning the supremacy of your culture. You know, even if you haven't explicitly thought of your culture as the best, it's just what you know and you just, it's the norms you grow up with. And to just see other cultures, see the way other people live and make it, you know, make you realize, hey, if I had born in, born in this place, that's how I would be. And sometimes, you know, it's, 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 it's just as good. And, uh, you know, and that to question the supremacy of one's own culture. We've seen this with, with gay rights. We've seen that sometimes people who are really, really anti-gay, uh, when they realize that, you know, a close friend or colleague or a family member is gay, that their animosity decreases, that they start, again, realizing that these people are close to them and, you know, questioning their prejudices. Now, this is not always the case. There's sadly some people who get ostracized from their own families and, uh, you know, never have a chance to reconcile. But I think more often than not, direct, you know, uh, having, you know, people who have gay people directly in their lives tend to moderate their views if they came up with kind of a very strict religious view that was very anti-gay. I think really fascinating ways, pop culture can really pay, play a large role in empathy. There's, a, there's some research that says, shows like Will and Grace that normalized gay people on, you know, in a sitcom for many years really helped America kind of reduce its anti-gay bigotry. Uh, again, I don't think this is in a you know in a movie. I don't think does it because it's kind of a one-off, right? It's a two-hour thing. You don't you know as soon as you're out, you know you watch the next thing and you kind of forget about the movie you saw. But like TV shows that you kind of live with, they're in your living room. It's in a very intimate setting, and it's over long periods of time. You get to know the characters over many years. I think there's possibly a, a lot going on here. And so you, we wonder, you know, if we if we had more TV shows with Muslims and Latinos and Native Americans and, and gay people and vegans and everything, and they just became normal characters, again, in people's living rooms, you know, week after week for years, that could go probably a long way to helping people develop empathy for those, those kind of um, groups of people that they might not have direct experience with in their lives. We also know that leadership matters, right? That charismatic figures can inspire empathy in others and they can inspire, um, you know, uh, collective action. And, you know, I'm going to be say real clearly, I don't think Biden is that type of leader, right? He He's not the charismatic type of leader who is going to, you know, really rally people around some kind of higher purpose. I kind of look at him as a placeholder, you know, if we can get him elected in November to clear the state slate and, you know, um, do a, a refresh of the American body politic. But I think in the future leaders, I think, you know, the 2024 or 2028, we need charismatic, empathetic people and particularly women. I think, 
you know, just getting a woman president will go a long way to, I think, helping decrease sexism and bring in, you know, a female perspective, which oftentimes is more empathetic. Again, in general, not to say, you know, you know, individual by individual women are more empathetic than men. But I think as on a whole, the gender uh, females, it's just more natural, probably because of the, the, the biology of, of raising children and having that direct biological connection with their, their offspring. That being said, in many ways, empathy is going to remain mysterious. And, uh, you know, we know that it is learned, though. You know, even if we don't have a formula for how to, um, you know, how to develop empathy here, I think we know that it's learned. And so here again, we have the wisdom of the saying, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, right? Teaching children to be empathetic is going to be much easier than changing the attitudes of hardened adults. Now, again, with the conservative movement being mostly older people who have hardened sociopathic tendencies, and and this is still going to be a challenge. But I think at the margins, we can still increase empathy in those populations, and we can do a really good job teaching young people to be empathetic so that the new generations of Americans and American leaders really have that much more on the forefront. So after um, after the break, I'll come back with the antidotes. Then come on across to me We'll hold hands and then we'll watch the sunrise From the bottom of the sea But first, are you experienced? Okay, so antidotes for today. Empathy, empathy, empathy. I really want to urge all of us to dig deep in this time and have empathy for everyone. This includes all the zombies and even Trump. You know, Trump was given an amazing opportunity. He came into a strong economy and he could have been a decent president. He could have dropped the racist language, realized the responsibility he had, but he got stuck in this narcissistic death spiral that has really led to, you know, probably the worst American presidency in modern history. And I, I, you know, I have empathy for him. I'm sure he's a damaged human being. You know, you can just by looking at him, you can tell. And again, all the conservatives who, you know, right now I'm working hard over time to defeat, I have empathy for them, whatever they were brought up in, you know, that, that has hardened them so much to make them, you know, have full of such toxic um, thinking and such kind of anger and resentment. I mean, it's just a horrible way to live. I also want to extend that even more broadly and say, I think we need to think again about empathy for all the sentient beings that are suffering under human ignorance, whether it's in the factory farms. And again, that's probably the the number one, the billions of animals that we're torturing so we can have, you know, bacon and cheeseburgers. It's just one of the most gross abuses in, 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 in all of human history. And I think must just be utterly and completely destroyed. I think all the, 
you know, the, the wildlife through climate change and through our pollution that is suffering. I mean, you see these pictures of the turtles with the plastic in them and the whales with the plastic in them and the birds dying with plastic in them. And you just think, you know, really, is that is that is that going to be our legacy? Just this toxic environment because we wanted plastic soda bottles. Um, and so we really should extend this uh, empathy as far as we can. Because, you know, even if humans aren't the only animals with empathy, there's plenty of other animals that show empathy. It's certainly one of our superpowers, right? That we can have empathy for people in the future. We can have empathy for, you know, for creatures big and small. And so my my point here is to use it, right? Muscles, you know, atrophy if they're not used. And again, empathy is a human superpower. So let's use it. And then I think as we develop our empathy and increase it, that will only lead us, you know, to greater compassion and greater wisdom and hopefully, you know, building a better, uh, a better humanity and a better global society. So with that, everybody, I hope you are doing well. I hope this uh, zombie apocalypse will abate soon and we can get back to some semblance of normalcy. But in the interim, I'll keep putting out these uh, podcasts. Hope you're enjoying it. If you are, please share with family, friends and colleagues. Uh, You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, and now Spotify. Rate it. And uh, with that, everybody, take care. Be well.